Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Air Warrior podcast, bringing you all the news and key talking points from military aviation, from deployments and exercises to attrition and procurement. I am your host, Richard Thomas, and this week we're going to be taking a look at the MI-24 attack helicopter, which entered service in the 1970s and has since gone on to become one of the most widely proliferated rotary platforms of the past couple of generations. All of that coming up a little later on in the show. The news this week. With Croatia recently opting for used Rafale F3Rs in its fighter replacement program, officials at Swedish defense manufacturer Saab have highlighted a perceived competitive difficulty when pitching new build platforms against second-hand alternatives. The late-made decision by Zagreb is an example of history repeating itself, following the failed 2018 procurement of second-hand Israeli F-16CD Barak fighters, which was cancelled due to pressure from the US government. In response to the recent Croatian decision which opted against Saab's Gripen fighter, among others, Saab officials said during a June 8th webinar that they respected the decision, but pointed to the challenges when competing against second-hand platforms. Jonas Helm, head of Saab Business Area Aeronautics, stated, We all know these processes are quite complex, adding that Saab could never really be competitive when competing against offers of used platforms from other program participants. In the US and Boeing's MQ-25A Stingray test asset marked a historic milestone on June the 4th, when the platform conducted the first ever aerial refueling operation between an unmanned tanker and a manned receiver aircraft. This flight took place from Mid-America's St. Louis Airport at Mascouta, Illinois, and demonstrated the Stingray's ability to fulfill its future tanker mission using the US Navy's standard probe and drogue air-to-air refueling method. During the operation, the test asset successfully transferred fuel from its carbon-produced aerial refueling store to a Boeing FA-18F Super Hornet, an important milestone for the US Navy program. And in more US Navy news, the service has taken receipt of the first TH-73A training helicopter from Leonardo in a ceremony on June the 10th. The initial fixed firm price contract of nearly $177 million awarded in 2020 called for the production and delivery of 32 TH-73A helicopters, and in November the same year, the US Department of Defense exercised options for an additional 36 aircraft in a $171 million fixed price contract. Based on the commercial AW-119KX, the TH-73A is replacing the aging fleet of TH-57BC Sea Rangers and will serve as the first training aircraft for personnel at Naval Air Station Whiting Field in Milton, Florida, where all student helicopter pilots for the US Navy, US Marines, and Coast Guard train, along with several NATO allied nations. And that's the news. Let's turn now to the MI24 Hind as I grab some time with freelance defense journalist Alexander Mladenov to discuss the past, present, and future of the platform. It was as far back as the 1970s that the MI24 attack helicopter, known in NATO circles, as the hind and elsewhere as a crocodile or flying tank, first began to enter service with the armed forces of the Soviet Union, and in the decades since has become an iconic platform, widely distributed in the Caucasus region and beyond. Today, as the type nears 50 years in service, we're going to take a look at where the platform is at in terms of global distribution and ongoing modernization, and ponder just how far it will operate into the next half century before it is finally laid to rest. 
Time then to turn to Sofia-based defense journalist Alexander Mladenov, who has just written on this very subject in the July edition of Air Force's Monthly. Mr. Mladenov, thank you for coming on to the show. Uh, thank you for the invitation. So my uh, recollection of uh, seeing an MI-24, my first recollection of seeing an MI-24 was on film with a fairly well-known US action star back in the late 1980s. And indeed, it made a significant impression on me. Uh, even to a child's mind at the time, it looked like an impressive piece of engineering. But here we are, uh, several, well, a few decades later. Um, has that platform stood the test of time? Uh, so actually, the MI-24 uh, turned out to be a remarkably long life uh, uh, platform. This is uh, because of uh, the design solutions uh, in it. Uh, the development was indeed uh, very difficult, and uh, they did a lot of refinement in the 70s because the initial versions uh, uh, were very ineffective mm-hmm. and uh, very difficult to use in combat. Uh, but then uh, with the redesign of the NOS uh, section and introduction of more and more powerful engines and uh, new weapons, uh, the MI-24 became a very capable platform for the 1980s um, when it was used uh, mainly in the war in Afghanistan, which proved to be a very good and um, very capable uh, proving ground, uh, mm. which uh, revealed a lot of uh, shortcomings in the design, but those shortcomings were rectified in a very prompt manner in order to bring to Afghanistan more and uh, more capable helicopters. So this is uh, the so-called first generation of MI-24s, which are uh, still serving around the world. They are still well sold uh, on the second-hand market uh, because uh, the helicopter is uh, simple to maintain. It, had, it has a lot of commonality with the MI-8 uh, and MI-17 assault transport helicopters. Uh, the pilots who fly the MI-8 can fly MI-24. So mm. there is, um, this is easing a lot of the process. Uh, even in most of the countries, uh, the MI-24 and MI-17 and MI-8 are uh, serving uh, shoulder to shoulder. So this is um, the legacy of the first generation of MI-24s. Uh, which uh, also turned out uh, that initially were sold with uh, 20 years of service life and uh, 2,000 uh, flight hours. But uh, then uh, the new design bureau began to extend the service life to 40 years and uh, 4,000 flight hours, which uh, granted uh, a lot of uh, life uh, remaining to the helicopters. Also, there is a worldwide uh, support and uh, maintenance network for the type, uh, coming from Russia, but also from a lot of independent uh, maintenance and uh, overhaul providers. Uh, so the worldwide support is uh, now more or less well going. And uh, this is a motivation of uh, the countries to keep the type in service and uh, go with some upgrades or to buy secondhand helicopters because <laughs> it turned out that the new generation of helicopters, both the Russian mate and the Western mate, are pretty expensive for most of uh, this category of customers. And uh, the type is uh, very well operated in the third world, uh, in, in Africa and Asia, in Latin America. I mean, you've outlined a very interesting development path for, for the aircraft then. And a really interesting point you made then about the commonality that it has with other Russian aircraft uh, helicopters developed during the time so that pilots were able to cross-pilot. They think they, they could fly one aircraft, they can fly all aircraft. It's a very interesting point to make. Yeah, it is exactly the same the case for the maintenance. 
Mm. If you can maintain the MI8, you can easily maintain the MI24. There is a lot of commonality in this too. Also, the same engines, uh, the same uh, rotor systems, the same structure, more or less. Interesting. Okay. A fairly simple question, but it's worth asking. How does the MI24 compare against, let's say, its Western counterparts of a, of a similar age? With the similar age. So it would be well compared to the first generation of uh, Cobra helicopter, for example. In the 80s, uh, both were uh, speedy helicopters with uh, uh, tandem cockpits and uh, armed with uh, guided anti-tank missiles and guns. Uh, but uh, compared to the Cobra, for example, AH-1, uh, which is the old versions, uh, up mm-hmm. to the whiskey version, it is traditionally that the Western helicopters had better targeting system. For example, in the 80s and the 90s, uh, they were provided with the uh, infrared systems, uh, the FLIR, etc., for night operations, while the Russians were lagging behind. Uh, it's their traditional weakness. But uh, the biggest, how to say, uh, advantage of the MI-24 at least in the public opinion and in the advertising, is its uh, heavy armored uh, structure. When they uh, design it, the designers uh, take a lot of measures to put uh, armor protection uh, for the crew, especially for the crew and uh, some of the systems. But uh, in uh, Afghanistan, it turned out that uh, this armor protection is insufficient mm. for uh, sustaining uh, uh, small anti-aircraft artillery fire and uh, shoulder-launched missiles. But this was the situation, and uh, in the following years, uh, the type uh, continued to suffer despite its armor protection. Uh, it is uh, not uh, 100% uh, protected from ground fire. And uh, this was uh, the main cause for uh, a lot of losses. But anyway... Mm. The type continued to be used with great success in the counterinsurgency wars and operations. For the full-scale war, it will be questionable uh, its effectiveness on uh, today's uh, battlefield. But uh, we are speaking about the so-called uh, first-generation MI-24s, uh, which are represented by the D and the V and P versions. Then, uh, in the new century, after 2000, uh, Russians began uh, making a big facelift of the helicopter. Hmm. It was MI-35M, which is a new generation. We can call it second generation, we, uh, which got uh, updated uh, targeting system uh, for day and night operations with a FLIR, with a powerful TV camera, laser range finder, new gun, 23 millimeters, uh, new missiles, uh, new anti-tank guided missiles, and... Uh, also a version uh, which is used against uh, shelters and buildings. So it began more and more versatile uh, platform. And what is now in production for uh, the Russian military and also for uh, many export customers is a facelift of the legacy Hink mm. uh, with uh, a lot of uh, new systems, uh, which uh, is uh, sold out at uh, affordable prices compared to the new generation uh, attack helicopters in Russia, such as uh, MI-28NE uh, and uh, K-52. Uh, I mean, you outlined there really well the, the, the sort of the export success that uh, the first and the second generation of the, of, the, of the Hind have had. I mean, could you just sort of outline for our listeners, um, probably not much of an outline because it's been widely distributed, hasn't it? So where is it still in service today? Just give us an idea of some flavor of that. Uh, I have uh, here a list and uh, I started to count the countries and uh, 
I went to 60 and stopped, actually. Okay, so 60 and stopped, <laughs> yeah. yeah because uh, there is a very big uh, market for second helicopters for new countries in Africa, even Egypt, which is uh, maybe one of the biggest militaries in Africa, got a squadron of MI-24s in upgraded form a few years ago, and it is uh, still impossible to identify the source of these helicopters who sold out uh, <laughs> the helicopters to Egypt. Also, uh, other small African countries like uh, Cote d'Ivoire, like Mali, like uh, Burkina Faso are still getting uh, uh, second-hand or new-built uh, helicopters. So this is a very affordable platform. And uh, that's why it is uh, widely distributed and still widely operated around the world. Yeah, you mentioned some of the small countries able to acquire this this kind of platform. I think Cyprus as well is also an operator of the type. I mean, just sort of outline the low cost that this aircraft has compared to contemporary platforms. Uh, yes, uh, and especially even uh, in the end of the previous decade, the, the Russians uh, were keen to keep the prices low. Uh, for uh, the platform. And uh, that's why, for example, Cyprus uh, went on to buy the helicopters in 2001 when uh, it was uh, the most affordable solution for them. But uh, you know that the downside of uh, the cheap helicopters is that uh, sometimes they could be maintenance intensive or uh, there will be a short service life or time between overhauls, which is uh, one of uh, the main disadvantages of the hind. It's uh, time between overhauls is uh, seven years or 1,000 flight hours, whichever comes first. Mm. So you are dependent uh, on overhaul factories in Russia or in some independent places around the world, like uh, Poland uh, or Bulgaria or the Czech Republic, which are very well specialized and uh, very proficient in doing this, but uh, also Ukraine. But uh, in the recent years, there is a trend that the Russians began to restrict the export of some overhauled components or newly made components like rotor blades or main gearbox. So it is uh, coming more and more difficult uh, for some category of customers to rely on independent providers. Yeah. I, where are they still being produced? I mean, you mentioned obviously that they are still building new airframes. So is, is that just being produced in Russia? Yes, uh, Russia produces new airframes of the MI-35M, which is the second generation helicopter, which is a facelift uh, with a more powerful engine, a new rotor system with composite uh, rotor blades, uh, with a new targeting system, uh, with uh, electro-optical and uh, infrared uh, sensors, with a new digital cockpit, uh, with a whole new self-protection system. So it's a uh, they are trying uh, to use the old concept in a facelift form to continue producing and selling. Maybe, according to my forecast, uh, now we are in the beginning of the decade, maybe for five or to ten years, they could produce a helicopter uh, subject to market demand. But currently, there is a market demand for 10 to 15 helicopters a year. That's, that's not being produced for internal use. Is it just a platform that's being developed just for exports or is that internal as well? Uh, yeah, in- interestingly, it was uh, during the crisis of the Russian military when they had no budget for to fund uh, developments. Uh, so uh, the helicopter was funded uh, with a mixture of funds, uh, mainly the own funds of uh, Mew and uh, Rosverto, and together with and then with uh, funds from customers. Uh, this uh, facelift, uh, the first uh, customer was Venezuela, then Brazil, and uh, after that, uh, the Russian military 
they can also to buy the helicopter and uh, it is now the biggest customer for the uh, second generation MI-24, which is the MI-35M, which is also widely used in the Russian operation in Syria. Okay. I mean, a question about sort of rotorcraft design is that, barring a few exceptions, and I won't name them now, but we can, we can probably guess what those exceptions are. They're sort of Western-based programs. But barring a few exceptions, rotorcraft design hasn't moved on an awful lot for 20 or 30 years. You've got platforms, let's say, like the Blackhawk as well, being used for 30, 40, 50 years on, and the Hind as well. Is there, is there a, a risk that uh, industry, and, and specifically Russian industry now, will lose the ability to design clean sheet airframes and, and they'll, they'll have to keep going back to uh, upgrading the hind. If we're into the second generation now, maybe we'll get a third and a fourth generation. What sort of problems do you think that'll, that'll, that'll create for industry? Uh, so their industry is quite busy with uh, the new designs like the MI28N okay. and now uh, MI28NM and also the of KA52 and uh, now it's upgraded version. So they are working on uh, several helicopter types uh, uh, simultaneously. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the new generations are uh, more expensive and uh, mm. the sales are restricted only to the Russian uh, military and uh, a few, how to say, big uh, international customers like Algeria, like Egypt and uh, like Iraq. So they are working on a very wide front on a good many projects. So they have a lot of novelties in the new helicopters, which they use back in the MI-24. For example, all the rotor system was initially designed for the MI-28, and then it was installed on the MI-24 to improve the performance. Uh, it is also the case with the engines. All the three helicopter types, the MI-24, 35, MI-28, and K-25, and KA-52, use uh, basically the same engine right now. So there is uh, this uh, kind of commonality. Across Interesting. The so basically, I, was, I, I sort of set myself up for a fall then because I had a very lengthy question saying there isn't any, any new designs, uh, any rotorcraft designs in the Russian industry, but you've actually corrected me because apparently there is, and it's feeding back into that ongoing development of the MI-24. Interesting. Okay, thanks for that. Um, final question. I guess it's fairly thematic, but you know, if and when the type, the MI-24, eventually does cease production, and you never know, we might come back here in 20 years' time and still be talking about it, but you know, when, when the models in service eventually are retired, what sort of legacy will the MI-24 and its new generations leave the world of military rotorcraft? Um, it will be remembered, uh, firstly, as the most widely used and uh, most affordable uh, attack platform. So at this uh, moment, uh, this has this uh, legacy and uh, it will continue because uh, the type has a lot of uh, life extension potential. So uh, it will be difficult to see the type uh, disappearing anytime soon. Uh, for example, I was, uh, when I was researching for my latest article uh, for the operations in uh, Eastern Europe, I saw that uh, Serbia went on to purchase uh, newly built MI-35M, which is mm -hmm. the facelift we were discussing, and uh, it uh, has all the chances to remain in service until uh, 2050 or 2060. <laughs> so there's a lot of time ahead uh, at the type, especially the facelifts. 
Indeed, by which point I'll be a very, very old man. Okay, very interesting <laughs> discussion. Remarkable, really, uh, how, how a well-designed platform, how long a well-designed platform can remain in service if it's given you know, effective modernization paths to follow. But we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Alexander Mladenov, many thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, I also thank you for the attention. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in the podcast, visit the Key Aero and Air International websites. But for now, until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.